Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for October 10th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. An audit frenzy is taking place in the United States, and the quickening pace has an impact on how some judges are now vacating extrapolation estimates. Reporting our lead story this morning is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the American Health Information Management Association, we know them as AHIMA, is expected to reveal updated guidelines for making compliant queries. Their concern, of course, fraudulent upcoding. We'll have more on this developing story later this week. In the meantime, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurst. He is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Well, it appears I opened a real can of worms last week when I mentioned a DRG downgrade audit finding that was received by a hospital where the auditor noted that the query was leading. Two listeners asked great questions. First, Joe asked if there was a law or regulation that prohibits leading queries. And you can't see it, but both David Glazer and Nicole Emanuel both noted in our internal chat that no such law or regulation exists. I then had an online discussion with Dr. Erica Reamer, and she in turn added some of her CDI colleagues, and they agree there's no such law. But that does not mean you have carte blanche to produce leading queries. Dr. Reamer will be addressing this tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday and with an article on ICD-10 Monitor. And as Chuck noted, AHIMA and Actus are releasing their guideline on compliant queries today. Who knew healthcare billing and coding could be so complex? Now, moving on, last week, First Coast, the MAC um, is from, in Florida, issued a notice that they're seeing an increased number of claims for anesthesia services provided to patients who are receiving epidural injections or facet joint injections. Their medical directors feel that anesthesia is not needed for these procedures, and as they said, if the patient has needle phobia, an oral anxiolytic should suffice. Is First Coast correct? Well, I have to admit I haven't done a literature search on the topic, but it seems that if patients manage to receive their injections without the services of an anesthesiologist in past years, why would it be necessary now? I recall some of my first colonoscopy, and way back then, the gastroenterologist not only did the scoping, but they also supervised the nurse administering IV sedation. Now it's routine to have an anesthesiologist. The same argument could probably be made for cataract extraction. What, what, role does com- excuse me, what role does patient comfort and efficiency play in deciding if a service is necessary? That's a question I won't touch. Finally, UHC released their new observation policy. But the old policy is really no different than the new policy. Once again, they say that observation is time limited, but then the policy goes on to say that at that point, their medical director will determine if the patient warrants, quote, an inpatient level of care. How infuriating, but also how absolutely typical of them. Inpatient is not a level of care. The care provided to inpatients is exactly the same as that provided to observation patients. 
Inpatient is a status, and it is appropriate for the patient who hits the end of the time allotted for observation, but still requires ongoing hospital care. Now, if they want to say that ICU level of care is not appropriate or telemetry is not appropriate, that's perfectly reasonable. But playing these games about inpatient observation really has to stop. It'll be interesting to see what they do about Interqual now that the purchase of Change Healthcare by United Health Group is completed. That's all for today, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Solutions, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now it's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I hate wishy-washy laws. If a law exists, in my mind, it should be specific. However, that is not always the case. Let me give you an example. Let's take prepayment review. In North Carolina and many other states, prepayment review is statutorily defined in a two-page long statute. It's a a statute 108C-7 in North Carolina, and it says in pertinent part, the provider shall remain subject to the prepayment claims review process until the provider achieves three consecutive months with a minimum 70% clean claims rate, provided that the number of claims submitted per month is no less than 50% of the provider's average monthly submission of Medicaid claims for the three-month period prior to the provider's placement on prepayment review. If a provider does not submit any claims, following placement on prepayment review in any given month, then the claims accuracy rating shall be 0% for each month in which no claims were submitted. If the provider does not meet the 70% clean claims rate minimum requirement for three consecutive months within six months of being placed on prepayment review, the department may implement sanctions, including termination. Now, that is a very specific statute. Now, juxtapose the federal regulations for prepayment review applicable to Medicare. 42 CFR 405.903 is a much terser regulation. It states that a contractor may select claims or claim, claim or claims for prepayment review. In conducting prepayment review, a contractor may issue additional documentation requests to a provider, but the regulation does not specify how many, a percentage, or any time frame. I find the federal regulation to be underwhelming and nonspecific. The federal regulation allows a provider to have 45 days to submit documentation unless good cause exists for the lateness but the contractor conducting the prepayment review has the ability to decide if the good cause exists. Remember the state statute for prepayment review, normally they state that penalties will be wielded upon failure of the prepayment review. In Medicare, prepayment review will result in an initial determination under section 405.920 which states after a claim is filed with the appropriate contractor, the contractor must do one of three things. 
determine if items and services furnished are covered or otherwise reimbursable. Two, determine any amount payable and make that payment accordingly. And three, notify the parties to the initial determination. There's no penalties mentioned. Instead, the, contract, sorry, the contractor is given complete authority to decide how to proceed. And I question whether that authority is well given. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 11 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, who's sitting in today for Matthew Albright, and senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Columbus Day, also Indigenous Peoples Day. It is Monday, October the 10th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. It's saying, my lawyer said this is okay. Now, those six words seem entirely innocuous. In fact, it's pretty reasonable to think that telling people your lawyer blessed a particular action is smart. But it comes with a giant risk. When you tell someone that your lawyer approved a particular activity, you're revealing advice you received from a lawyer. That disclosure can be considered a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. A doctor in Michigan learned this lesson the hard way. Government agents were visiting the physician's practice. While a wise individual engages legal counsel and works with that counsel at length before agreeing to an interview with law enforcement, This physician opted to directly talk with the agents during the initial encounter. And when the agents asked about a particular activity, the physician said confidently, my lawyer said this was okay. That statement was a public disclosure of advice from legal counsel. And because of that, the court concluded that the physician was no longer able to assert that the advice was confidential and the government was able to obtain all the legal advice the physician had retained, um, had received on the subject. Unfortunately for the doctor, the lawyer's advice was far more nuanced than this is okay. In fact, there were a variety of caveats that lawyers often use in their advice that wound up making the physician look uh, as if they had disregarded the advice. 
Well, I'm sure the physician expected that referring to the legal advice would somehow clear their name. The statement did the opposite and embroiled the physician in a long investigation. The lesson is that it's worth thinking twice before starting any sentence with, my lawyer told me. Anytime you share advice you received with any, uh, from a lawyer with anyone else, you run a very real risk, or a risk or a risk of waiving the privilege. I guess you might get some kitchen implements in there too. For example, if you forward a letter or an email to another party, um, that could waive the privilege. And I certainly understand why two hospitals or two SNFs might wish to share legal advice with an eye to lowering their legal expenses. In situations where there's a common interest between the parties, there's an argument that sharing a legal opinion uh, doesn't destroy the privilege. But before you share a letter or email with your lawyer or with anyone outside the organization, or even with individuals inside your organization who don't need to know the information, you should consider that forwarding the communication may mean that it's discoverable by the government. Now it's true that waiver of the privilege isn't always a problem. There may be nothing harmful anywhere in the attorney's file. When you're dealing with a potential overpayment, the existence of the 60-day rule often renders questions of whether advice is privileged close to irrelevant. And I'll discuss that either next week or in an upcoming broadcast. So Chuck, the romantic thing about hearing the secrets that you keep when you're talking in your sleep. Well, I'm not sure that sleep talking has ever resulted in a waiver of the privilege. Forwarding or talking about advice will result in secrets that you just can't hide. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Senior Healthcare Consultant Timothy Ferguson. Good morning, Timothy. What do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Good morning, all, and happy case management week to my folks out there. A big week of celebration. So excited for all you guys to be recognized. I appreciate you so much. Okay, now to the news. So, Last week, I reported on the SDOH requirements for 2023, with many of our listeners being familiar with the Z code discussion. However, based off our listener survey, the majority of respondents had not started working on the quality requirements under the social drivers of health measure. So today, I'd like to discuss how this can be incorporated into your workflow and what you'll need to consider from a documentation and EMR process. So to recap, the Social Drivers of Health data submission is voluntary for 2023. That means it's a great time to test out workflows prior to 2024 when reporting will be mandatory and then under a payment determination in 2026. Although there are many options for SDOH questions and our EMR vendors may be creating their own mechanisms, CMS has specifically provided cited and recommended, although not required, the Health-Related Social Needs Screening Tool, HRSN. Each hospital will need to have a mechanism for providing the HRSN questions or your own version that apply to the five domains, housing, transportation, food, utilities, and personal safety. 
to hospital inpatients who are 18 years of age and, or older. You'll need to have a mechanism that is discreet to pull data that says yes or no is if the questions were provided to the patient. You'll need to have discrete fields to mark if the patient declined or if they were unable to answer. And for those individuals that can complete the questions, there has to be a documentation in place that captures all five domains of the responses. Uh, so it doesn't matter what the specific answer was for those responses at this time, they're just looking for a positive screen, but you have to have all five to get the credit. Many of these questions live in the EMR and are asked in various ways, either by case managers, physicians, nursing. However, look back in your own system, are they discrete fields for quality reporting? And what is the consistency for asking these questions to our patient population? So if we are considering who sees every inpatient upon admission, these questions maybe fall to two areas that will likely need to at least cover these topics for accurate collection. And I'm sorry, that may be the patient registration folks or nursing administration ass admission assessment. So this really is going to be a time for internal discussions. Once these questions are answered, case management and or social work can gladly be routed to follow up with the needed supportive services and elaborate with the patient on any of the responses. I would recommend that you maintain a consistent process for collection, capitalize on shared fields in the EMR that can go across disciplines, and work with your coders so they can easily view this information to capture those Z codes. So I asked today for our Lister survey, I would like to ask, are you familiar with the health-related social needs screening tool, HRSN? Yes, very familiar, somewhat, and not at all. And me reporting it on it for the last two weeks does not count in that answer. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. And up next, the Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Kate Bradley. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Kate Brantley. Good morning, Chuck. The Biden administration recently hosted the first White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health in over 50 years. The goal of the conference was to bring the public and private sector together to create a strategy that addresses health concerns related to hunger, nutrition, and diet-related diseases. In its official national strategy on the issue, the administration notes the role that Medicaid expansion will play in ensuring the healthcare industry addresses the health and nutrition needs of Americans going forward. On the same day as the conference, CMS announced its approval of two innovative state Medicaid Section 1115 demonstration initiatives, both with the goal of testing improvements to both Medicaid access and coverage. The first of these demonstrations is out of Oregon, which will now allow children who are eligible for Medicaid to stay continuously enrolled until they turn six years old without the family needing to renew coverage. Anyone over the age of six will be able to keep their coverage for two years at a time, even if the family income fluctuates. Medicaid will also cover any necessary early screenings, diagnosis, and treatment for all citizens up to age 21. This will both reduce administrative burdens on the families and the state and help address issues with continuity of care during the first year of children's lives. 
The other demonstration was approved for Massachusetts, which will now provide up to 12 months of continuous coverage for Medicaid and CHIP beneficiaries after release from correctional settings. It will also provide 24 months of continuous eligibility for beneficiaries who have been confirmed chronically homeless. These new initiatives will attempt to address coverage gaps for these specific populations. Both states will also expand programs addressing what the White House calls health-related social needs, that its states are crucial to promoting positive health outcomes for citizens. With CMS's approval, Massachusetts can now provide additional housing supports, nutrition education, and medical food assistance services, all of which will be available to many at-risk populations like pregnant women, postpartum individuals, and children. Oregon similarly will expand food assistance programs, particularly for those experiencing life events such as homelessness. The goal of these particular initiatives is to stabilize individuals enough to obtain and continuously receive the Medicaid benefits that they are eligible for. These demonstrations and future similar demonstrations that CMS hopes to see in light of these approvals are particularly important in light of a recently released study finding that while the actual number of insured Americans increased during the COVID pandemic, many are still unable to afford rising health care costs. With the measures Congress enacted during the pandemic, almost 299 million Americans were covered, the highest number ever recorded. But the study found that many are technically still underinsured. Underinsured was defined as experiencing one of these three circumstances, facing out-of-pocket health expenses that were at least 10% of household income or 5% of household income for those under 200% of the federal poverty line, or uh, when a health plan's deductible was at least 5% of household income. Four in 10 insured persons were found to fall under at least one of those categories. Additionally, with protection from the public health emergency also potentially coming to an end soon, even more Americans are at risk of losing access to vital health care benefits. So, Chuck, as the Biden administration continues to call for affordable health care coverage, we can likely expect to see more of these Medicaid demonstrations coming out of the states as evidence of federal agencies' efforts to comply. With both states required to monitor and evaluate the outcomes and the impact of these demonstrations, the administration hopes to learn key lessons and how to move forward in its vision for American healthcare. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley, substituting today for Matthew Albright. Kate is a legislative analyst for Zalos. And coming up, why the pace of audits is now changing so that some judges are vacating extrapolation estimates. That story is next, but now it's time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thank you, everyone. So I asked, how familiar are you with the health-related social needs screening tool? And what I found is that the majority of our listeners, about 61%, said not at all, which, thank goodness, it is not required for 2023. We'll get there. So in my link for my article or my article this week, you'll see the link for the actual tool with the questions. Um, from CMS and the original reference of the requirement for that data metric of what we have to fulfill by 2024. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, everybody, for your survey. We look forward to your article this week in Rack Monitor. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by, everybody. Hospitals are required by the Medicare conditions of participation to have a utilization review committee. But having a committee that meets the requirements and having a committee that is effective can be very different. They're not the same. Here's good news. A webcast led by Dr. Ronald Hirsch reveals what it takes to optimize your utilization review committee. 
you'll learn how to improve the Utilization Review Committee at your hospital. Keys to Optimizing the Utilization Review Committee is a must-experience webcast, and it's now available on demand. Listen and learn. Keys to Optimizing the Utilization Review Committee is available on demand at the Rack University Bookstore. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there's an auditing frenzy taking place now across the country in hospitals and physician practices. In fact, there are so many audits taking place that the impact on judges hearing these cases is really significant. Imagine some judges are actually vacating extrapolation estimates. So here now to report the details of our lead story is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Frank, what is really going on here? This is old news, but back in November of 2018, the U.S. District Court, I think it was the District of Columbia, issued a mandamus order, which basically just tries to force the government to do their job, right? Requiring Department of Health and Human Services to clear the backlog of the Medicare administrative appeals by the end of this year, 2022. And this is because the ALJs were not keeping up with the statutorily mandated 90-day period. Now, back then at that point, I think there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 425,000 appeals that were pending And some providers are waiting up to five years to get their hearings scheduled. Specifically, uh, the timeline went something like this, 19% reduction by the end of 2019, excuse me, Chuck, 49% by the end of 2020, 75% by the end of 2021, and then all the backlog has to be done by the end of this year. So basically, the courts gave CMS four years to fix the problem. Now, as a result of the order, HHS and subsequently these ALJs were under enormous pressure to burn through these hearings in order to meet the accelerated reduction of the hearing caseload. As a result of this, I have participated as a testifying statistical expert in more ALJ hearings this year than in the past three years. I've had something like 20 already and have at least another dozen scheduled before the end of the year. And in many of these hearings, the judges have been quite clear that they don't have time to mess around. The facts and just the facts, please. For many of the hearings this year, the judges have instructed counsel that they already have a copy of my CV so you don't have to read my qualifications into the record. They'd also say something like they either had access to or had read my report and therefore it wasn't necessary, and I'm paraphrasing this, to regurgitate my findings paragraph by paragraph. So to accommodate this, Rather than long-winded questioning by the attorneys, I would write up a testimonial summary that was maybe 15 minutes in length and covered only the top three or four statistical issues. And the judges loved it. They were very appreciative of that process. And you know what they say? Happy judge, happy appellant. Now, maybe this was due to pressure to get the cases heard and decisions out that we started to see the pendulum swing again with results of the outcomes of these extrapolation reversals. Now, years ago, we got reversals, I don't know, 75% of the time. And then that win rate began to plummet with what we were told by some ALJs was coaching of the ALJs by CMS to let the extrapolation stand. Now we're seeing it swing back again. Our win rate seems to have increased again. Now, it's important to note that this is a small sample size, but the turnaround is significant enough to raise some hopes. We went from a low um, of around 25% after this alleged coaching, I'll call it that, to a current win rate now of over 60%. And while I'd like to think that this is due to my amazing analytical and testimonial skills 
it appears to coincide more with this race to the finish for 2022. And it should be noted that in each win, our arguments have been quite diversified. Maybe judges are more willing to relegate now to the MAC should the contractor appeal. You know, the first sentence of Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, goes like this. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. <clears throat> so I'm going to butcher this with my own opening statement, which would be all extrapolation losses are alike. Every extrapolation win is a win in its own way. And that's the world according to frog-throated Frank this morning. Thank you. And back to you, Chuck. That was senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the director of business intelligence and analytics at Doctors Management. Frank is also a member of the editorial board here at Rack Monitor. David, we have time for one question. Let's take one question, David, before we say goodbye to everybody. David? You bet. This is a question for you, Tiffany. Can you comment on how the social determinant of health screening tool interacts with the Z codes? I think what we're trying to get there is, one, remember that Z codes do not have to be documented specifically by a physician that's no longer required. It can just be a healthcare professional within um, the hospital setting. And so they, it's, that has since been expanded. So two, then also looking at the specific Z codes around Z59 that relates to those five domains. So for instance, if I have a patient who's staying in the hospital significant amount of time longer than usual because the patient is homeless and there's no place for them to go, I may be looking at also including Z59 related to their homelessness. If I have a patient with significant malnutrition, abuse or neglect issues, feeding issues, then I may be including Z59.4, lack of ad- adequate food. And those questions are coming up in those early screening tools, which are easy then for the coders to see. And I hope that answers the questions and back to you guys. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Chuck, that's our question. I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks, David. That was the question. That was the answer. And David, thanks very much. That is going to be a wrap, ladies and gentlemen, for our live edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen, who reported our lead story. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow on Talk Ten Tuesday for an exclusive report on the new CDI practice brief on how to generate a compliant query. That's going to be tomorrow. He was expected to release that brief today. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you all very much for being with us today and have a good week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.